We made it through the holidays and look forward to 2023. I'm John Lou Johnstone. I'm your co-lead interim minister for reflection and discovery. And I'd like to welcome everyone here this morning to consider our past, present, and future, how the past shapes us as we rest in the present and look forward to what is to come. I welcome those of you whose presence has persisted through good times and challenges, and those who have never been with us before, and those who join us online. I do offer a particular welcome this morning to those of you who are guests. We are pleased that you found us and would love to know more about you. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person, and it's in that tradition that I invite you to greet one another online in the chat or right here in person. Good morning. My name's Carolyn Greminger. I'm your lay leader this morning, and I'm so happy to see so many people here. Would you please recite with me the words for lighting our chalice? This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. Share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. Our call to worship this morning is Let Astonishment Be Possible by Reverend Gretchen Haley, Senior Minister of Foothills UU Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Whatever you come in anticipating, whatever you expect or worry for our world, for the future, for our lives, let it go. Make space in your heart to be surprised. Make room in your soul for a new story to take shape. Let astonishment be possible. At this life that remains a miracle, imagine here the bursting of joy Relentless and resilient, coming in waves, washing over us with music and story, silence, and still this dreaming together, being hope for each other, encouraged to believe in this new day, in this new day dawning for us all. The mission of this church shapes its ministries and its presence in the world. The congregation wrote it together, then you put it on the wall in the sanctuary, and we say it together every Sunday so that we may more readily carry it with us in our hearts through the week. So let's do so now. Together we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Beloveds, do you remember roly-polies? A roly-poly is a small bug covered by a flexible shell that looks like armor. They're also known by other names like potato bug and wood shrimp. Roly-polies roll up into a little ball to protect their soft underside, only displaying their hard shell. Times of change can make us want to roll up into a ball like a roly-poly, believing we are protecting our soft underside. But when we do, we cannot stretch toward one another, 
together breaking the harmful systems and structures of oppression and prejudice that keep us apart. Focusing on our breath can help us remain open, quieting our nervous systems when they are affected by worry and stress and anxiety of change. I invite you into a brief practice of noticing your breath with me. Where you are, find your center, that core spot in your body where you feel balanced. Take a deep breath. And take another deep breath. And as you continue to breathe, notice your breath coming in and out of your body. Notice perhaps your chest rising and falling. Your belly expanding and contracting. Turn to your breath if you find your mind is wandering. Turn to breath. Turn to your breath. Thank you. Your breath is always with you when you are with family and friends, when you are in worship on Sunday, in committee meetings. In the midst of change, return to your breath when you feel your anxiety and worry and stress rising. Breath. Breathe. I am Reverend Patrice Curtis, the Transformational Interim Ministries Director within UUA's Ministries and Faith Development Group. My ministries with interim and developmental ministers as they build belonging in our congregations during times of transitions. Held gently and roly-poly will unfurl itself. May you feel held in love and compassion of our faith so that you feel open, and may you hold others so that they too may feel open, and may you return to your breath in those times when you feel you want to curl up. You're invited to light candles for your joys, sorrows, concerns, what lays in your heart.
Our meditation reading this morning is We Are Able by Vijaya Balan, a poet of Indian origin living in Copenhagen. He wrote this in a mixed, heavy week in July 2018. Things happen. Moments are created, faces are remembered, and feelings are tightly grasped within the dry skin of our cracked hands. Cracked hearts, too, maybe. Where do we go but forward? Remembering absent friends, lost loves, broken dreams, and a hope to bury it all in that dark backyard behind our weathered but sturdy home. We will move on, forge new paths, break new barriers, repeat a thing or two, but oh well. We all have some familiar cycles in our lives, right? We are resilience built on the foundation of faith and belief. We are unwritten pages with past chapters that can fill a library, a library that none might visit. And we will still go ahead and do everything we want to, regardless of what anyone else ever said. We are beings with a field of uncertainty surrounded by determination at the most unexpected moments. Love and let go. Love and cherish. Love and be broken. Love and not expect anything in return. Love and be loved back a thousand times. We are the sum of billions of atoms. We are the moments we create and the things that happen. We are the beliefs of more than thousands of faiths in the world. We are tragedies of past the conundrums of the present, and the triumphs of tomorrow. We are able. We are capable of all of them. We are capable and able. Now I'd like to introduce Leo Collis. He's going to tell us some stories of the founding of our church. Good morning. Um, Yeah, I love that reading. And uh, Reverend John Lou asked me to give some background about this church, this congregation, and kind of what makes up its DNA. You know, why, do, why are we here? What, what brought us here? What brought us together? Unitarianism was brought to Austin by the Reverend Edwin Miller Wheelock in 1868. This is his picture. Uh, Wheelock was a Harvard-educated lawyer who also graduated from Harvard Divinity School as a Unitarian minister. He was friends with Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he was open to transcendentalism. He served in the Civil War as chaplain in the Union Army and afterward worked with the Freedmen's Bureau in the Gulf Coast area of Louisiana and Texas. He was married, and he had two children. His specialty was education. He developed curriculums to teach formerly enslaved children how to read. His work was very effective, and in 1868, the governor of Texas moved him to Austin and appointed him as the first superintendent of schools. Now, that sounds like a nice progressive career path, but there is really uh, interesting backstory to all of this that makes it really an amazing story. Wheelock was a devoted abolitionist. He was passionate about what we now call human rights and was outspoken about the immoral institution of slavery. Here's a story about that. Soon after he got his first Unitarian ministerial appointment in Dover, Massachusetts, he delivered a stirring sermon supporting the raid on the Federal Armory at Harpers Ferry, Virginia, by fellow abolitionist John Brown. 
Now, those of you who don't remember every detail of your American history might not remember this, but Brown in October of 19, excuse me, 1859, just before the Civil War, raided the federal armory, including or intending to start a slave liberation movement that would spread to the southern states. Um, it didn't seem like it was well planned, and the enslaved people that it was meant to liberate didn't exactly know what was going on, so it failed. Brown was tried for treason and was hanged on December 2nd, 1859, the first person executed for treason in the history of the United States. So that's interesting. But Wheelock, our, our friend Wheelock, he wrote a sermon about this, and that made him very famous. He was asked to speak in Boston, and his sermon was printed in newspapers. His sermon was in support of what Brown did. Uh, his, Wheelock's sermon didn't pull any punches on the topic of slavery. Here's a quote from it. Withholding the key of knowledge, abrogating the marriage relation, rending families asunder at the auction block makes the state that protects it a band of pirates and the church that enshrines it a baptized brothel. And he said lots of things like that through, this, through, that, uh, through that sermon. The state of Virginia put a $1,500 bounty on his capture, dead or alive, for treason. They wanted to try him for treason for saying those things. Well, luckily for Wheelock, the Civil War broke out in 1861. <laughs> he immediately enlisted and became a chaplain in the Union Army. That's how he got appointed to uh, work with the Freedmen's Bureau during uh, Reconstruction. But think about it. Here is a man who was once hated throughout the South, somehow able to work with both the southern Gulf states and the federal government to do something that the people of the South found unimaginable, teaching reading to those that they had enslaved. Well, he was able to do it and do it successfully. And he got a high-ranking position in Texas from, the, from Governor Pease, who himself was a former slave owner. Wheelock had some pretty mighty diplomatic skills. Uh, he served in a number of high-ranking jobs in Texas government, including the superintendent of, of the School for the Blind, our good neighbors back here. Uh, he was a really uh, charismatic man. Uh, Texas was not really ready for liberal religion at that time. <laughs> And Wheelock, and Wheelock knew that. But he went to Spokane, Washington in 1887 to form the Unitarian Society of Spokane, and he served as its minister there for two years. He came back to Austin. I guess he was inspired by that experience. He came back to Austin in 1891, started a Unitarian ministry here, always speaking up for the oppressed and against monopolies and uh, conglomerates. That ministry survived Wheelock's death in 1901. He died in 1901 at the age of 72. And uh, that ministry continued through uh, the end of World War I. Uh, now, Reverend Wheelock's daughter, Emily, carried the mantle of Unitarianism in Austin after her father's death and for the rest of her life. And from what I've gathered, she had a lot of her father's diplomacy and courage. Emily was married to a British man by the name of John Housen, who was associated with the International Great Northern Railroad and the Austin National Bank. He was moneyed, let's say. Uh, they had one child who died as an infant in 1889. Uh, Emily's great social justice passion was for getting the vote for women. 
She was involved in every organization that promoted women's rights, and, and she was a, a leader of many of them. Emily was a charter member of the Austin Women's Club and was involved in the formation of the Texas Federation of Women's Clubs. After years of working towards women's suffrage, Emily was 59 years old when the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920. Unitarianism survived quietly, evolving after World War II into the Community Church of Austin, which ceased in the winter of 1951 when it morphed into the Unitarian Fellowship of Austin. Services were held in people's homes initially, and after and among the founding members was Emily Wheelockhausen, who was by then 90 years old. Emily called in all of her favors to get things jump-started with, for this church. I think she knew it was her last hurrah. The YWCA gave this fellowship space to meet. The Texas Federation of Women's Clubs did the same. Uh, other women's organizations gave equipment and administrative assistance. Finally, in 1954, the Unitarian Fellowship of Austin had grown strong enough to call its first minister and became incorporated as the first Unitarian Church of Austin. That's where we get the 1954 date. There were 66 families committed to the new church with 81 members, and it was continuing to grow. It, continu it just continued to grow. Sadly, in 1957, Emily Wheelockhausen died. She was 96 years old. But she, but she wasn't done helping this congregation. She left this congregation a legacy of $100,000, uh, equivalent to about a million dollars today. Maybe more, depends on. They use it to buy land. Uh, they use it to purchase the land that uh, this church was built on, this site. And the building was dedicated in January of 1961 with House and Hall named in Emily's honor. As an aside, uh, this property was purchased in 1960 for $20,000. And the building, which was just the House and Hall part, uh, cost $86,100 to build. Reverend Wheelock and his daughter Emily played key roles in forming this church, but they were not the only ones. It was their spirit their determined commitment to the spiritual practice of social justice that, that helped inspire others, and I'm certain they were inspired by many people. After Housen Hall was built in 1961, the classroom wing was built in 1968, and in 1987, this beautiful sanctuary was added. There are many stories about the things that have taken place here, many people who've worked toward compassion and justice, in this place from racial integration to LGBTQ rights, moral treatment of immigrants and refugees, reproductive justice, the list just goes on. Um, in, in, are you looking at that? Yeah, in 1961, in 1961, the, uh, the, uh, when the initial church building was built, the Austin American Statement published this article, Unitarian Service Features Dancing. I'm sure that caused a collective clutch of the pearls around the city. <laughs> but little did they know, we were just getting started. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Leo. It is important to hear and know the stories of our past. To find ourselves, our center, which is this month's theme, we need to learn from the past, rest in the present, 
and look forward to the future. The poet said earlier, we are the tragedies of the past, the conundrums of the present, and the triumphs of tomorrow. Of course, we're also the triumphs of the past, the joys of the present, and the uncertainties of tomorrow. Both are true. I no longer believe that my biography begins with my birth. I can't tell my personal story without also telling you about my parents who met in the military and courted going to Broadway shows on USO tickets and who gave me both my genes and a nurturing environment. My story even includes my grandparents who shaped my parents. Would I be who I am if my mother's parents had not run a dairy farm in Oklahoma? If her grandparents hadn't moved to Oklahoma from Illinois and Iowa, if my father's father hadn't come to Maine from Canada, if my father hadn't been adopted. My beginnings go back further in time than I can even recount or recall because I only know them from the stories of other people. We create our stories of ourselves. All of us have stories we tell over and over about our lives, the story of how we met our spouse, of how we chose our career, of the birth of our child, of the death of our parent. We tell our stories to reinforce our experience and so that we can understand better what has happened to us and who we are. And this is true for trauma as well as joy, failure as well as success. It's why we tell the stories of those who we love after they die. We are inscribing those stories on our heart and our mind so that our loved one lives on. We really only learn from our experience when we have translated and refined our story. Without putting it into a form, we can't really learn from it. We need the story to make meaning out of experience, to understand what's happened, to learn so that we can move on, whether in the same or in a different way. Commentator David Brooks has written, if you don't have a real story, you don't have a real self. And we do the same thing on communal levels. Our families have stories. Our church does, as Leo shared a bit this morning. Our nation does. None of these stories are idle or random. They establish the essence of civilization, teach us how life is to be, how people are to act, and what has the most value. The past is as much story as history. So it matters if and how we include the 1619 arrival of enslaved people in this country, the genocide and land grabbing against indigenous people, the colonization, the civil war. None of these stories is singular. They are collections of individual stories, and they always have a particular perspective. History is never as simple as, look at that perfect hero, or that evil person ruined everything. <laughs> We'd like it to be so, but the stories really are nuanced, full of imperfect heroes and 
a tug of war between good and evil where the sides cannot always be identified until later. The white UU theologian Rebecca Parker gives us perspective on just how broken our world is. And she wrote this in the early days of the 21st century, long before the current crises. She wrote, we are living in a post-slavery, post-Holocaust, post-Hiroshima war, a world. We are living in the aftermath of collective violence that has been severe, massive, and traumatic. The scars from slavery, genocide, and meaningless war mark our bodies. We are living in the midst of rainforest burning, the rapid death of species, the growing pollution of air and water, and new mutations of racism and violence. Parker's phrase, post-slavery, post-Holocaust, post-Vietnam, post-Hiroshima world, reminds us of the significance of what we call history. And she goes on to say that that has left scars. And today we need to add post-9-11, post-January 6th, and living amidst the spread of viruses previously unknown. Scottish-American moral philosopher Alistair, Alistair McIntyre says, I can't answer the question, what am I to do, until I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part. As consequential, powerful, and unavoidable as stories are, they can also mislead us, even trap us in a lie. And that's why we need to continually re-examine, retell, rewrite the stories. Have you ever been with siblings and told childhood stories only to find that you all remember what happened differently? <laughs> you could consider this problematic if our memory was like a video recording that we could trust to be objective, but it's not. Our memories include our emotional responses as well as sensory data, our judgments as well as our observations, which is why our sibs don't agree with our memories of that Thanksgiving long ago. We did not live the same experience. Now, the advantage to the way we encode long-term memory is that we can rewrite our stories, either to include no, new information that we didn't know before or to look at our lives from a different perspective. Psychologists call it narrative therapy, a process of telling a story that grounds a particular problem, then finding new ways of seeing that story and retelling it so that the problem is minimized. Here's a simple example from UU minister Amanda Pompey. She writes, I used to believe a story that I was a bad driver. I don't like driving on highways. I once hit a parking post in a garage. I needed the examiner to explain the three-point turn during my driver's test. All those things are true, and so the story must be true, too. But over time, I've worked on hearing a different story. This story is the one about how I drive all through D.C. handling park, uh, traffic circles like a pro. It's about good parallel parking skills and always wearing my seatbelt and using a blinker. 
It's about passing my driver's test the first time, since I did, after all, know how to make a three-point turn. Those things are all true, too, so the story must be true. The stories we tell ourselves are interpretive, at least as much as reality-based. We have some freedom to choose our stories, not absolute freedom. If your stories drift far enough from real facts, they become ridiculous fantasies like the biography of George Santos. (laughs) A tree, whatever the circumstances, does not become a legume, a vine, or a cow, explains biracial Ghanaian Brit Kwame uh, Anthony Appiah in Ethics of Identity, the reasonable middle view is that constructing an identity is a good thing, but that the identity must make some kind of sense. <laughs> we don't get to choose everything about our story because we are shaped by who we are born as and the people we have come from and by the people who are entangled in our lives and memories. But Since we have stashed emotional and interpretive content in with our objective and sense-based data, we can pull the whole mess out and pull apart what's there and ask ourselves, is what I believe to be true about myself, about my life, really based in truth, or has it been distorted? Have I learned something else? Do I need a new story? And part of the challenge is that when, new, when we encounter new facts that don't fit into our story, we tend to ignore the facts rather than reconfigure the story. And that's just how our brains are made, so we have to work to overcome that impulse to dismiss what doesn't fit. None of us is one thing. None of us has a single story. Your church certainly does not have a single story nor does our nation. Stories are shaped by who has the power to tell them, by the perspectives they include and exclude, by the visions they cast and the boundaries they draw. And stories shape us, which means we need to continually examine our stories for truth, for completeness, and for how they serve or fail to serve us. Stories can break and stories can repair, says Nigerian novelist Chimananda Idichie. Indeed, stories can break and stories can repair. Returning to a past that has been distorted or moving ahead to a future that has never been more than a dream. We are going through a time in our nation where the illusion of a shared national story has evaporated, and recognizing the illusion for what it is, maybe we are freed to shift into the future with scales removed from our eyes. So we need this process of sorting out meaning. We have to see what we want to claim from the past and how to recast it to serve the future. We have to decide which relics are worn out and which enthusiasms we wish to pursue. So knowing more about the past and the present allows us to make more reasonable choices for the future. And the present is more than a dividing line between the past and the future. The Nigerian storyteller Ben Okri says, We live by stories, we also live in them. 
One way or another, we are living the stories planted in us early or along the way, and we are also living the stories we planted unknowingly or knowingly in ourselves. We live stories that either give our lives meaning or negate it with meaninglessness. If we change the stories we live by, quite possibly we change our lives. Now, you use love utopian visions. Thumb through the hymnal sometime if you don't believe me. We will never reach those visions, those futures, that beloved community until we have better understood our past and acknowledged that our present. And that's true for us as individuals, too. So may we treasure what we can of the past, acknowledge the rest of it, Rest contentedly in the present as we move toward the future we envision together. Please join me in the words to extinguish our flame. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth. The warmth of community or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. The benediction comes from my colleague in uh, Baton Rouge, Steve Crump, retired colleague now. That which is worthy of doing, create with your hands. That which is worthy of repeating, speak with a clear voice. That which is worthy of remembering, hold in your hearts. And that which is worthy of living, go and live it now. Amen. Blessed be. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.